Hey, guess what, Rebecca? Oh, I don't know. This is this is very open. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't know. What? Tell me. It could be anything, but it is, in fact, that we have launched a special subscription offer for the listeners of the Third Sector podcast. Ooh, that's nice. It is nice. I like it a lot. So listeners mm. <laughs> who sign up to Third Sector's The Information Package can now get 50% off the first three months of their subscription when they pay by quarterly direct debit. All they need to do is go to www.thirdsector.co.uk forward slash podcast 50 to get involved. And when you do that, you will gain access to our brilliant magazine, unlimited news stories, high value sector analysis, and of course, lots more views and opinions from myself and yourself. Which, you know, if you're listening to the Third Sector podcast, clearly you're not adverse to. You're, you're OK with it at the very <laughs> least, if not actively enjoying it. Uh, so where do they need to go to get that again? Oh, thank you so much for asking, Rebecca. Um, they need to go to www thirdsector.co.uk forward slash podcast 50 to sign up today. Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week, we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week, we are discussing what a return to the office might look like for charities. So yeah, so Emily, what do you miss most about the office then? I think this is probably a really unconventional view, but I genuinely miss my commute. Um, I had the luxury of a very, very gentle one, to be fair. It was just one train, uh, no underground, so I would get a gentle 20-minute ride into Twickenham. Uh, you also work, you live more central than you work as well, so you very much work going against the flow of traffic as well in that sense. Yeah, I would go against the flow. So again, it, my commute was quite a luxury commute as they go um but for me it was half an hour every day where my mind could just ease gently into work mode I would listen to a podcast or I would read the metro um and just have that kind of that that sort of limbo space between starting my day and being in work mode and then at the end of the day when I left the office I had that time to wind down again I really really missed that these days, I find myself just starting work about half an hour after I wake up because I'm like, well, it's there. I've got stuff to do. Might as well switch on the computer. Um, and I've really tried to moderate that for myself. I try and get up and go for a walk. But my discipline is lax. Um, so I miss the fact that I never had the option of having that time. Yeah, I have this notion that I will get up before work and do some exercise. And it's not true. I'm not a morning person unless I have to get up because I will miss a train. Yeah, yeah. I'm not getting up before I need to. So I miss my commute. Um, I do, of course, miss the people as well. well it, good. We've not seen each other for a year. Yeah, it's been a year since we last sat down in person, which is extraordinary. That is bonkers. And how about you? What do you miss? Uh, well, obviously, people, people too, um, you know, and I think we have done quite a good job of keeping that camaraderie going. But yeah, I do. I do want to see you all. And I mean, I worry that I'm just going to inappropriately hug everybody when I see you. As well. <laughs> um, you know, I'm not going to know how to people at all. Um, so yeah, um, tea rounds, I quite miss. I miss no one else has. So I, I, I live with someone like my husband doesn't drink tea. He doesn't. Nor does mine. My yeah. partner doesn't drink tea either. It's weird. He doesn't drink tea. He doesn't make tea because he, quote, doesn't know how. <coughs> yeah. So I realised, like, in a better part of a year, nobody has made me a cup of tea and I have not made anybody else a cup of tea 
for the better part of a year and i yeah i i miss that that little like that intimacy um on a more practical point as we're recording the podcast i do miss the studio mics so we used to go and record this podcast in you know a studio in central london which had the most lovely mics and a mini fridge it had a mini fridge and Haribo. There was always Haribo in the studio as well. It was really good, sweet. And yeah, there is a certain irony to us recording uh, a podcast about going back to the office from... From I, home. Yeah, from my bedroom. Uh, <laughs> but yes, um, but I also, I also think there will be certain things that, you know, when we do go back to kind of, you know, perhaps more of an office setting, I kind of want to start a petition for people to be required to bring their pets to physical meetings. Because I've rather enjoyed that. I think if you've got a cat, you just have to bring it in for a meeting occasionally because I want to play with your cat. To walk across the table and just knock people's coffee cups on the floor. Absolutely, absolutely. And somebody um, was, like, I was in a meeting, and I don't know if I've said this on the podcast before, actually, but so I was in a meeting and somebody's cat sat on the microphone and just started purring. Mm. And it was the most soothing thing. Like, it just, my soul just felt better. And I want that in real meetings as well. We'll make a note of it, see if we can get a third sector cat. Yeah. I'll do what I, I'll do what I can. Yay! As the world begins to open up again, many organisations will be contemplating how to return to the office, or indeed if to return to the office. We don't know yet when offices are going to reopen, but if things continue to chug along the roadmap as planned, we could see it happening in the next few months. Chancellor Rishi Sunak says that working from home will not be the new normal post-COVID-19, and returning to the office is quote-unquote inevitable. But is that strictly true? Well, third sector columnist Zoe Amar is not convinced. She pointed to charity research from Open, which found that 60% of respondents said their teams were more efficient and more effective when working from home. And she also spoke to a range of charities, and they all had different plans about how they were going to reintegrate themselves into more normal working conditions. Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting that I think, obviously, Rishi Sunak is speaking with kind of businesses in mind. And obviously, they are going to want to save money um, in, in, in the same way as any organisation. But I do think it is a slightly different proposition for charities to other businesses, right? That there is, you know, for a long time, there's been this concern among the general public around how much charities are spending on back office costs, including the actual cost of the office itself. Mm. And you do often get people, usually in the context of, of complaining about charities in a, for some other reason, having a bit of a swipe at the big charities for having big headquarters in London in what must be very expensive locations. Um, and previously, charities have always maintained that they need these flagship buildings for very understandable reasons. You know, they are big organisations. They need a focal point. They need a space where their huge workforce could come together. But I do wonder if the pandemic might have changed that. You know, we've all learnt to work in ways that we thought weren't possible a year ago. And it may be that this is a good opportunity for organisations to save some serious money. And you know, given the situation for the last year or so, they're probably going to want to take that opportunity. I think you're absolutely right. And no doubt there is an undeniable attraction in saving some money on commercial leases, especially if the last year has shown that your organisation is able to function well, perhaps in some ways even better than it did office-based with people, you know, working remotely. I think it's also worth pointing out that we have seen a few charities moving their headquarters outside of London in recent years. Um, even before the pandemic, the RNIB had made the decision to sell off its historic headquarters in favour of somewhere smaller and cheaper. And um, Comic Relief has also downsized on its office space to reduce costs. When, when you look at smaller charities, loads of them have been working remotely for a very, very long time. It's not a new state of things for them at all. And even infrastructure bodies like the Small Charities Coalition and NAVCA have been 
working around a remote culture. Um, and interestingly for them, what that meant was that this time last year, when everyone else was <laughs> flailing and trying to figure out how they, you know, you know, maintained their working lives, those organisations were the ones that really hit the ground running because a lot of the things that everybody else had to adapt to had just been how they've worked now for years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was speaking to Jane Ide, who was then the chief exec of Navca, and she, uh, you know, and I think I actually did a piece of sort of top tips from someone who's been doing this for a long time, and she was just like, "Yeah, this is just how we work. Like, it's fine. You'll get used to it." Um, so I do think we'll see more employees working remotely, more charities shutting down offices, but and I don't think it's going to be all of them. Um, there probably will be plenty of organisations that will need to have physical venues that beneficiaries can access or that provide a part of the services they offer. And so, Emily, you've previously written around employee issues in HR. Do you think we're going to see a lot of organisations working remotely once the pandemic is over or will there be a rush back to the office? I genuinely believe that the nine till five is a thing of the past. For now, I, I cannot see, especially in this year and even I'm going to be ambitious and say for the next five years, I think across practically every sector, you will not see that return to five days a week, nine till five working culture. Um Anecdotally, I haven't heard of a single person in the last year saying we are wanting to get back to that five day working week as fast as we can. Mm. And I also don't think I've heard people sort of saying I want to, even where people, you know, I appreciate not everybody wants to work from home and is comfortable working from home. You know, if people have children or a shared flat situation, that's not ideal. But I think even those people are like, yeah, one or two days at home would be nice. Right. I mean, if you look at that comment from the prime minister last week where he said, you know, people have had to... <laughs> enough days off and should make a stab at getting back to the office you, you look at how that went down I mean there were there was an outcry in the national papers about that it was broadly very very poorly received um, and I think that is a great temperature check for how people are feeling about you know that full-time return to work I, I completely agree with you that there are organizations that will need to keep their physical office spaces I don't think we will see a mass move of people closing down their physical offices and going full-time working from home uh, what I think is more likely is that we're going to have fewer people in these office spaces at any one time. And you will see staff doing that rotation a few days on here, a few days off there. In terms of that immediate move back to the office space, I think what will be a, a massive and a very immediate concern in terms of HR is the physical safety of their employees. Um, Organisations have an implied duty to take reasonable care of the health and safety of their employees. And there is still a pandemic on. You know, COVID-19 is not going away anytime soon. So while everyone's waiting to become vaccinated, social distancing and safety measures are going to be in place and employers will need to be putting really clear, really practical actions in place to support this. So when the country was easing its lockdown around last July, our news editor, Andy Ricketts, spoke to a few charities about the steps that they'd been taking to put these measures in place. The homelessness charity Crisis said that risk assessments for staff and for office space were a massively important part of any return to work strategy that should be put in. So they developed a critical conditions list and this included measures that had to be in place before people could return to work. And that was everything like the office having a stack of PPE, um, having a heightened office cleaning regime in place and making sure that public transport was fit for staff to safely use. Public transport is such a bugbear for me. You know, a lot of the time, office spaces, you're going to be able to regulate those. But as an employer, I think something you really have to think about is how can staff get to and from their places of work in ways that are safe? Not everyone will be able to drive, you know. 
there's definitely something about human behaviour on public transport anyway, that it is not a space in which people are selfless. Like, I never despair more for the human race than when you go to get on the train and everybody has crowded into the doorways and people won't move down inside the middle of the carriage. And, you know, literally they will leave people behind to ensure they get their own little bit of elbow space. And that what that says about human nature, I find so disturbing. <laughs> and I do think like the idea that, that because of the pandemic, we're all going to give each other this space and that we're going to be able to give each other that space. I, I'm just very, very dubious about it. Absolutely. And so at Crisis, you know, they had all these critical conditions in place and these were going to be assessed on a weekly basis using a traffic light system, red, yellow, green. And if any of the signals were red, employees would just be told, don't come into work. Mm. I think that steps like this are not only crucial and absolutely the right thing to do, you're going to need to have these in place if you're going to build confidence and trust among staff, particularly if you think about people who have been shielding, people who might be more vulnerable to COVID-19. You have to think hard about how you are going to make workplaces safe for your people before anything else. I think employees are going to want that sensation of your safety matters more to your employer than you physically being in the office. Uh, And I think that's really something you can't underestimate. So to go back to Zoe Amar's piece about returning to the office, um, as well as the change in physical working habits, she also made some really interesting points about how the working dynamics could shift post-pandemic as a result of the shakeup over the last year. So she suggests that employers need to recognise that the balance of power has shifted. So she says back in the day, many of us had to go to work in a specific location, starting at an agreed time. Now people managers recognise that rather than staff fitting in with your organisation, they need to work when and how they wish so they can be at their most productive. I've got to say I'm a little sceptical about this one, or rather I'm sure there are organisations where this is true and it definitely does seem like the ideal outcome. I think this is what employers should be working towards um, and it's it's a very possibly logical one. But I also think there are going to be a lot of organisations where that just hasn't happened and not necessarily through a fault of, of the employers. Um, so Polly Neat, um, who's the chief exec of Shelter, was tweeting about how she was thinking of lining up some outdoor face to face meetings in the next few weeks because we are allowed to meet up with people outside. And then she sort of said, well, actually, I realised I won't have time because she's in these back to back Zoom calls, you know, where we used to mentally give ourselves time to get between meetings. We actually haven't needed to do that for a year. Um, And, you know, people have literally just been going from call to call to call. And it might be tricky to go back to that. So I also think for every employer like the one Zoe spoke to, where they're allowing people to work more flexibly, there will be situations, even where you have really well-meaning employers, where people have been working for longer into the evening because we've lost that work home divide and earlier in the morning as you were saying earlier on and I, I you know I do think that's something that Zoe's aware of in her piece but the idea that working remotely also comes to mean working more flexibly is the ideal situation and it would be really great to see. I think what I am perhaps most fascinated uh, by with my HR journalist hat on and also my equalities hat on um, looking into the future will be the work that employers are going to have to do now around um, more kind of basic equalities. Um, and that's in everything through recruitment to day to day working practices. I think uh, the, you know, pre pandemic, um, the office based working environments oftentimes were just really, really discriminatory against people um, who had various like caring responsibilities, for example, or 
people with disabilities who maybe couldn't travel or couldn't access, you know, these physical workspaces. I remember literally just um, months before the pandemic really, really kicked in, I had a friend and a colleague who got to the final stages of a job application and she was offered the job at this company. I'm not going to name any names. They offered her the job and she said, yes, that's great. I would love to take it. Um, but I just need to be able to leave at three o'clock every Thursday to pick up my children from daycare. And they said, oh, sorry, we can't do that. That's appalling. If you can't be in the office nine till five, five days a week with your role, then that's not going to work for us. And she said, well, I can't change my childcare arrangements. I have to be able to go and do that. And she had to turn down that job because they were so inflexible and immovable around it. And they just said, no, 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 we can't make that work for you. After this last year, I think any employer who's saying, no, 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 we can't make that work is going to have to take a long, hard look at them. That, that excuse is not going to fly anymore because we have been able to make it work. So it could be a really good thing in terms of making these cultures more equitable and more progressive. And I think any employers who look to revert back to those inflexible and, let's be real, discriminatory um, practices in their offices could find themselves with a lot of explaining to do. Yeah, I've definitely seen, um, I think it was on Twitter, I saw somebody pointing out that actually the kind of the current working dynamic that we have where, you know, you work 40 hour week that you have to be in the office in certain times. And, you know, you're supposed to look after children or, you know, sort of maintain your house and everything else is actually predicated on the idea of from the 1950s of one person in the household going out and doing all that work and then having another separate person that could be supported by that income who's doing all the cleaning, who's doing all the childcare, who's doing all the food, who's doing all the shopping. And that's that's not realistic. That's not what any of us have. And somehow the working dynamics haven't changed to to accommodate that and maybe this is what we could start to see post-pandemic and it's certainly there is something nice about working from home in that you can just go and put a wash on and then come back and finish your work i think however zoe does raise a really really good point around zoom fatigue i'm so over zooming I find that if I do more than three video calls a day, I just get completely knackered. And what was fascinating was that um, our our editor, Chris, went and he did a socially distanced open air hangout earlier this week with friends. And he tweeted about it and he said, no one knew how to speak to each other. (laughs) It was like because we're all so conditioned to being on Zoom calls now. The minute anybody spoke, everybody else stopped speaking. They stopped, you know, we've forgotten how to converse normally because we're so used to these stilted video calls, which are actually really draining because it's not how human beings are meant to be talking to each other. Zoe pointed out that the reality is a lot of the issues that we are talking about at work actually don't require a half hour or an hour long video call. We've just gotten into the habit of tabling them for things that could ultimately be solved over Slack and over WhatsApp. Um, I think there are definitely still organisations out there that need to find that balance for it. Zoe says that once they do find that balance, it could have the result of shifting from a meeting-based culture to a decision-based culture, which would be great. For my part, I think it is going to be so, so important that as we start thinking about returning physically to the workplace, that good employers are also taking responsibility for setting down really clear boundaries about the ways that we're working with things like the volume of video calls we're being expected to do every day, the number of different digital and different tech channels which are being opened to employees. Uh, it's great to have flexibility of communication, but you can definitely have too much. At home, you can definitely be always working on, and that's exhausting. 
And I think for the charity sector specifically, this is a sector that has just worked through the biggest crisis probably in living memory for these organisations. This has been, and I'm not going to say unprecedented, I refuse. It's been a really extraordinary context for our working environments. And I don't know anyone in the last year who hasn't worked outside of their normal working hours or gone above and beyond their roles and delivered in these exceptionally stressful working environments because we had to do that to survive. These organisations had to do it to stop themselves being shut down. And as we've talked about in the past, because these are people who are really values driven, they care about the survival of their organisations because that means their service users are being supported. But however, charities continue to work in the coming months. And of course, recognising that you still need those levels of care for your service users. It's crucial, I think, that this crisis mode of working is not just allowed to become the new normal way of working. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Everything has been heightened and it's been out of the ordinary. And continuing with this level of working for charities would be completely unsustainable for everybody who's involved. You know, there has been nothing normal about the last year and we need to have a recognition of that at the heart of decision making, whether it is coming back to physical offices, working more remotely. It has to be putting your people first because if they all burn out, the organisation will fail however way you're trying to drive it. And yeah, ultimately, the choice is going to be different for each organisation. You know, for larger organisations, it may be that they need to reduce the size of their offices. Smaller organisations may have been working from home anyway. There is going to be a balance that each different organisation is going to find. It's going to depend on what they do and how they've been working previously. So Zoe's conclusion is that charities need to be prepared to allow their culture to change. The way your charity works is likely to go through a lot of fine-tuning over the next year, she says. She goes on, none of us knows quite what the future looks like. You'll need to plan for it in partnership with your teams, keep asking questions and try out new ideas. It's going to feel strange, uncomfortable and exciting. Go with it. And I think that's really the key point there, that organisations aren't just, you know, we can plan as much as we want. Actually, there's going to be a little bit of feeling your way and working out what does work for both you and your employees and your service users. And that's okay. Yeah. Each week, we are bringing you a mini coronavirus care package, a good news story that we've spotted in the sector. And as an early Easter gift to everyone, I want to talk about the Torquay Museum Bygones, which recently purchased an Easter egg from 1924. This Easter egg was gifted to Christine Lillian Maltcalf, who was two years old when she was given the present by her aunt. We'll put a link to a story about this Easter egg in the show notes, but I am also going to try and describe it now for Rebecca's benefit. You're welcome. Do go on. What does it look like? So this egg has a floral egg-shaped decorative casing. Um, what are the Russian eggs called? The massive one. Fabergé. Fabergé. Right, it's not Fabergé because it's not made out of fine materials. I think it's probably made. <laughs> I think it's probably made out of cardboard. But it has this uh, cardboard kind of decorative casing with violets painted on it, um, and that's protected this egg for years and years. And when you open up the cardboard casing, you have the chocolate egg then inside. So the chocolate egg forms the body of this doll which is dressed in a paper costume and it has a little doll's head resting on top of the egg. 
Um, and this little girl, Christine, in 1924, could not bring herself to eat it because she just loved this doll so much, which I think shows remarkable self-preservation. Um, Rebecca, what's the longest you've ever gone before you've cracked and eaten an Easter egg? There definitely was an occasion where my mum hid a bunch of Easter eggs in the garden. And I think, you know, she hid a number of them and there was one that was never found. <laughs> uh, and she she couldn't remember where she'd hidden it. So it's entirely possible that in 100 years, somebody will find that in a, in a, a garden somewhere in Somerset. Or, you know, there were some very, very happy squirrels that, that Easter. Sugar um, rush squirrels. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, how about you? I was very um, stingy about my Easter eggs. So this, I can totally identify with it on some level i used to save them let's be real mostly to taunt my siblings who would eat theirs within the first couple of weeks <laughs> oh you were that sibling you were that i okay. was that sibling i was i was that sibling i think the longest i ever managed to uh spin out eating one easter egg for was about two and a half months that is quite uh, impressive. around the age of 10 it was a lot and i was i was yeah i was just that horrible sibling i used to do it more so I could have chocolate when my siblings couldn't rather than actually just enjoying it. So <laughs> I regret I regret a lot of things. Um, but two and a half months tops, I would give my personal record for it. Christine, on the other hand, she left this egg untouched for 95 years. <laughs> when she presumably it gets easier beyond a certain point, you know? I think, I think the first, the first sort of six months when she is a child are the most impressive there. She was two years old. She was two years old and she kept it until she died at the age of 97 in 2019. Kept it in a drawer and... Her, her, one of her children, who is now 74 years old, um, said in an interview with a newspaper that her mum would occasionally bring the egg out of this drawer to show to her kids on special occasions. And um, she said, I think I saw this egg maybe half a dozen times over the course of my lifetime, so 74 years. Oh, um, that's so lovely. She just, she just loved this doll so much she couldn't bear to eat it. There is something about when you're a kid and you completely fall in love with an object, isn't there? You yeah. just, there's something, like that is probably one of the purest loves that you will ever have for something. It's just this kind of, but it is beautiful and you don't understand why I think it's so <laughs> special. And your mum is there like, this is, this is quite a tacky, ugly thing. And you're like, no, but it's beautiful and you don't understand. And I think that is rather lovely. And to be able to preserve that your entire life is rather lovely. So the egg has now been uh, auctioned off and it has gone to the Bygones Museum in Torquay and it is in remarkably good condition. In fact, it even still smells of chocolate after all this time. I have to say, I think it's definitely a case of beauty in the eye of the beholder. Um, to me, this egg looks spectacularly haunted, but it gave Christine joy yeah. throughout her entire life. So I am not going to judge there is something about those um the vacant painted eyes of old dolls which is definitely in the uncanny <laughs> valley right it is it is, it is it looks human it's not quite human and there's a very there's a very good reason we find those a little weird um yes yeah, so yeah clearly haunted but also aside from that it kind of reminds me of like a 1920s version of those alien goo eggs you used to have if anybody was a child in the sort of mid 90s what you will remember those from the playground. You know, they, they came, so they came in like a kind of plastic egg-shaped shell and they were like little kind of gooey, stretchy. They were made of like rubber, sort of sticky rubber, 
little alien shaped things, you know, with the kind of like, like you're kind of like proper Roswell landing. Yeah, big head, big eyes, gooey little body. And they kind of came in this sort of jelly. And the rumour was always, someone would always tell you that if you put two of them together and left them overnight, they'd have a baby. Um, and it was just this really, like it was kind of fetal kind of goo. And it looks like a 1920s version of that to me. But with chocolate, which is much more appetising. It's definitely prettier than that. But yeah, same vibes. So anyway, so in my uh, back to coronavirus care package for the charity sector, which I think is where <laughs> yes. we're actually going with this. We've deviated slightly here. Just a little bit. Uh, so I've got the news that Facebook announced last week that people have raised more than $5 billion for non-profits and personal causes through fundraisers on Facebook and Instagram since it was introduced five years ago. Uh, which is is really quite impressive. So there are now more than 85 million organisers and donors globally who have been involved. And in the UK, more than 7 million people have donated to a Facebook fundraiser since the feature was first launched. And I know because we've talked about it on the podcast before that there are some really knotty issues around Facebook as a donation platform and Facebook's attitudes to kind of the spreading of hate and misinformation and where that falls in kind of charities' ethical um, concerns. But without overlooking them, because I do think those are important issues, I would say that $5 billion is a pre- is pretty impressive. Um, and it has been a massively effective fundraising tool in that sense, that, you know, people doing fundraisers for their birthdays is much more the norm than it used to be. Um, and, you know, people collecting money for things, you know, with this this platform where all their friends are, I think it's, it, you know, it has been an impressive tool. Yes, there are still some issues to work out with it, but yeah. $5 billion, not to be sniffed at at this point. You can't argue with $5 billion, can you? It's difficult. It's difficult. I mean, no one's ever, no one's ever asked me to specifically for me personally, but I'd be willing, to have, <laughs> be willing to have a go. If you want to give me $5 billion and then have me argue against it, I'll try. We'll be back with another episode soon. So make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Emily Burt. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. And our producer is Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. We'll see you next week and a happy Easter to everybody.